Chapter 2, Part 1 Autobiography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Gilbert. Autobiography by John Stuart Mill. Chapter 2, Part 1 Moral Influences in Early Youth my father's character and opinions. In my education, as in that of every one, the moral influences, which are so much more important than all others, are also the most complicated, and the most difficult to specify with any approach to completeness, without attempting the hopeless task of detailing the circumstances by which, in this respect, my early character may have been shaped, I shall confine myself to a few leading points, which form an indispensable part of any true account of my education. I was brought up from the first without any religious belief, in the ordinary acceptation of the term. My father, educated in the creed of Scotch Presbyterianism, had by his own studies and reflections been led early to reject not only the belief in revelation but the foundations of what is commonly called natural religion i have heard him say that the turning point of his mind on the subject was reading butler's analogy that work of which he always continued to speak with respect kept him as he said for some considerable time a believer in the divine authority of christianity by proving to him that whatever are the difficulties in believing that the Old and New Testaments proceed from, or record the acts of, a perfectly wise and good being, the same and still greater difficulties stand in the way of the belief that a being of such a character can have been the maker of the universe. He considered Butler's argument as conclusive against the only opponents for whom it was intended those who admit an omnipotent as well as perfectly just and benevolent maker and ruler of such a world as this can say little against christianity but what can with at least equal force be retorted against themselves finding therefore no halting place in deism he remained in a state of perplexity until doubtless after many struggles he yielded to the conviction that concerning the origin of things nothing whatever can be known this is the only correct statement of his opinion for dogmatic atheism he looked upon as absurd as most of those whom the world has considered atheists have always done these particulars are important because they show that my father's rejection of all that is called religious belief was not as many might suppose primarily a matter of logic and evidence the grounds of it were moral still more than intellectual he found it impossible to believe that a world so full of evil was the work of an author combining infinite power with perfect goodness and righteousness his intellect spurred the contradiction the sabien or manichean theory of a good and an evil principle struggling against each other for the government of the universe he would not have equally condemned and i have heard him express surprise 
that no one revived it in our time. He would have regarded it as a mere hypothesis, but he would have ascribed to it no depraving influence. As it was, this aversion to religion, in the sense usually attached to the term, was of the kind with that of Lucretius. He regarded it with the feelings due not to a mere mental delusion, but to a great moral evil. He looked upon it as the greatest enemy of morality, first by setting up fictitious excellencies, belief in creeds, devotional feelings, and ceremonies not connected with the good of humankind, and causing these to be accepted as substitutes for genuine virtues, but above all by radically viviating the standard of morals, making it consistent in doing the will of a being on whom it lavishes indeed all the phrases of adulation, but whom in sober truth it depicts as eminently hateful. I have heard him say that all ages and nations have represented their gods as wicked in a consistently increasing progression, that mankind have gone on adding trait after trait till they reached the most perfect conception of wickedness which the human mind can devise, and have called this God, and prostrated themselves before it. This ni plus ultra of wickedness he considered to be embodied in what is commonly presented to mankind as the creed of Christianity. Think, he used to say, of a being who would make a hell, who would create the human race with the infallible foreknowledge, and therefore with the intention that the greater majority of them were to be consigned to horrible and everlasting torment. The time, I believe, is drawing near when this dreadful conception of an object of worship will be no longer identified with Christianity, and when all persons, with any sense of moral good and evil, will look upon it with the same indignation with which my father regarded it. My father was as well aware as anyone that Christians do not, in general, undergo the demoralizing consequences which seem inherent in such a creed, in the matter or to the extent which might have been expected from it. The same slovenliness of thought and subjugation of the reason to fears, wishes, and affectations which enable them to accept a theory involving a contradiction in terms prevents them from perceiving the logical consequences of the theory. Such is the facility with which mankind believes, at one and the same time, things inconsistent with one another, and so few are those who draw from what they receive as truths any consequences but those recommended to them by their feelings, that multitudes have held the undoubting belief in an omnipotent author of hell, and have nevertheless identified that being with the best conception they were able to form of perfect goodness. Their worship was not paid to the demon which such a being as they imagined would really be, but to their own ideal of excellence. The evil is that such a belief keeps the ideal wretchedly low, and opposes the most obstinate resistance to all thought which has a tendency to raise it higher. Believers shrink from the very train of ideas which would lead the mind to a clear conception and an elevated standard of excellence, because they feel, 
even when they do not distinctly see, that such a standard would conflict with many of the dispensations of nature, and with much of what they are accustomed to consider as the Christian creed, and thus morally constitutes a matter of blind tradition, with no consistent principle, not even any consistent feeling, to guide it. It would have been wholly inconsistent with my father's ideas of duty to allow me to acquire impressions contrary to his convictions and feelings respecting religion, and he impressed upon me from the first that the manner in which the world came into existence was a subject on which nothing was known, that the question, who made me, cannot be answered, because we have no experience or authentic information from which to answer it, and that any answer only throws the difficulty a step further back, since the question immediately presents itself, who made God? He, at the same time, took care that I should be acquainted with what had been thought by mankind on these impenetrable problems. I have mentioned at how early an age he made me a reader of ecclesiastical history, and he taught me to take the strongest interest in the Reformation as the great and decisive contest against priestly tyranny for liberty of thought. I am thus one of the very few examples in this country of one who has not thrown off religious belief, but never had it. I grew up in a negative state with regard to it. I looked upon the modern exactly as I did upon the ancient religion, as something which in no way concerned me. It did not seem to me more strange that English people should believe what I did not, than that the men I read of in Herodotus should have done so. History had made the variety of opinions among mankind a fact familiar to me, and this was but a prolongation of that fact. This point in my early education had, however, incidentally one bad consequence deserving notice. In giving me an opinion contrary to that of the world, my father thought it necessary to give it as one which could not prudently be avowed to the world. This lesson of keeping my thoughts to myself at that early age was attended with some moral disadvantages, though my limited intercourse with strangers, especially such as were likely to speak to me on religion, prevented me from being placed in the alternative of avowal of hypocrisy. I remember two occasions in my boyhood on which I felt myself in this alternative, and in both cases I avowed my disbelief and defended it. My opponents were boys, considerably older than myself. One of them I certainly staggered at the time, but the subject was never renewed between us. The other one, who was surprised and somewhat shocked, did his best to convince me for some time without effect. The great advance in liberty of discussion, which is one of the most important differences between the present time and that of my childhood, has greatly altered the moralities of this question, and I think that a few men of my father's intellect and public spirit, holding with such intensity of moral conviction as he did, unpopular opinions on religion, or on any other of the great subjects of thought, would now either practice or inculcate the withholding of them from the world, unless in the cases, becoming fewer every day, in which frankness on these subjects would either risk the loss of means of substance, 
or would amount to exclusion from some sphere of usefulness particularly suitable to the capabilities of the individual. On religion in particular, the time appears to me to have come when it is the duty of all men, being qualified in point of knowledge, have on mature consideration, satisfied themselves that the current opinions are not only false but hurtful, to make their dissent known, at least, if they are among those whose station or reputation gives their opinion a chance of being attended to. Such an avowal would put an end, at once and forever, to the vulgar prejudice that what is called, very improperly, unbelief, is connected with any bad qualities either of mind or heart. The world would be astonished if it knew how great a proportion of its brightest ornaments, of those most distinguished even in popular estimation for wisdom and virtue, are complete sceptics in religion. Many of them refrained from avowal, less from personal considerations than from a conscientiousness, though now, in my opinion, a most mistaken apprehension, least by speaking out what would tend to weaken existing beliefs, and by consequence, as they suppose, existing restraints, they should do harm instead of good. Of unbelievers, so-called, as well as of believers, there are many species, including almost every variety of moral type. But the best among them, as no one who has had opportunities of really knowing them will hesitate to affirm, are more genuinely religious, in the best sense of the word religion, than those who excessively arrogate to themselves the title. This liberality of the age, or in other words, the weakening of the obstinate prejudice which makes men unable to see what is before their eyes, because it is contrary to their expectations, has caused it to be very commonly admitted that a deist may be truly religious, but if religion stands for any graces of character, and not for mere dogma, the assertion may equally be made of many whose belief is far short of deism. Though they may think the proof incomplete that the universe is a work of design, and though they assertedly disbelieve that if they can have an author and governor who is absolute in power as well as perfect in goodness, they have that which constitutes the principal worth of all religions whatever, an ideal conception of a perfect being, to which they habitually refer as the guide of their conscience, and this ideal of good is usually far nearer to perfection than the objective deity of those who think themselves obliged to find absolute goodness in the author of a world so crowded with suffering and so deformed by injustice as ours my father's moral convictions wholly deserved from religion were very much of the character of those of the greek philosophers and were delivered with the force and decision which characterized all that came from him even in the very early age at which i read with him the memorabilia of xenophon i imbibed from that work and from his comments a deep respect for the character of socrates who stood in my mind as a model of ideal excellence and i well remember how my father at that time impressed upon me the lessons of the choice of hercules 
at a somewhat later period the lofty moral standard exhibited by the writings of plato operated upon me with great force my father's moral inclinations were at all times mainly those of the socratati viri justice temperance to which he gave a very extended application veracity perseverance readiness to encounter pain and especially labor regard for the public good estimation of persons according to their merits and of things according to their intrinsic usefulness a life of exertion in contradiction to one of self-indulgent ease and sloth these and other moralities he conveyed in brief sentences uttered as occasion arose of grave exhortation or stern reprobation and contempt but though direct moral teaching does much indirect does more and the effect my father produced on my character did not depend solely on what he said or did with that direct object but also and still more on what matter of man he was in his view of life he partook of the character of the stoic the epicurean and the cynic not in the modern but in the ancient sense of the word in his personal qualities the stoic predominated his standard of morals was epicurean inasmuch as it was utilitarian taking as the exclusive text of right and wrong the tendency of actions to produce pleasure or pain but he had and this was the cynic element scarcely any belief in pleasure at least in his later years of which alone on this point i can speak confidently he was not insensitive to pleasures but he deemed very few of them worth the price which at least in the present state of society must be paid for them the greater number of miscarriages in life he considered to be attributable to the overvaluing of pleasures accordingly temperance in the large sense intended by the greek philosophers stopping short at the point of moderation in all indulgences was with him as with him almost the central point of educational precept his inculcations of this virtue fill a large place in my childish remembrances he thought human life a poor thing at best after the freshness of youth and of unsatisfied curiosity had gone by this was a topic on which he did not often speak especially it may be supposed in the presence of young persons but when he did it was with an air of settled and profound conviction he would sometimes say that if life were made what it might be by good government and good education it would be worth having but he never spoke with anything like enthusiasm even of that possibility he never varied in rating intellectual enjoyments above all others even in value as pleasures independently of their ulterior benefits the pleasures of benevolent affections he placed high in the scale and used to say that he had never known a happy old man except those who were able to live over again in the pleasures of the young for passionate emotions of all sorts and for everything which has been said or written in exaltation of them he professed the greatest contempt he regarded them as a form of madness the intense was with him a byword of scornful disappropriation 
he regarded as an aberration of the moral standard of modern times compared with that of the ancients the great stress laid upon feeling feelings as such he considered to be no proper subjects of praise or blame right or wrong good and bad he regarded as qualities solely of conduct of acts and omissions there being no feeling which may not lead and does not frequently lead either to good or to bad actions conscience itself and the very desire to act right often leading people to act wrong consistently carrying out the doctrine that the object of praise and blame should be the discouragement of wrong conduct and the encouragement of right he refused to let his praise or blame be influenced by the motive of the agent he blamed as severely what he thought a bad action when the motive was a feeling of duty as if the agents had been consciously evil-doers he would not have accepted as a plea in mitigation for inquisitors that they sincerely believed burning heretics to be an obligation of conscience but though he did not allow honesty of purpose to soften his disappropriation of actions it had its full effect on his estimation of character no one prized conscientiousness and recititude of intention more highly nor was more incapable of valuing any person in whom he did not feel assurance of it but he disliked people quite as much for any other deficiency provided he thought it equally likely to make them act ill he disliked for instance a fanatic in any bad cause as much as or more than one who adopted the same cause from self-interest because he thought him even more likely to be practicably mischievous and thus his aversion to many intellectual errors or what he regarded as such partook in a certain sense of the character of a moral feeling all this is merely saying that he in a degree once common but now very unusual threw his feelings into his opinions which truly it is difficult to understand how any one who possesses much of both can fail to do none but those who do not care about opinions will confound this with intolerance those who having opinions which they hold to be immensely important and their contraries to be prodigiously hurtful have any deep regard for the general good will necessarily dislike as a class and in the abstract those who think wrong that they think right and right what they think wrong though they need not therefore be nor was my father insensitive to good qualities in an opponent nor governed in their estimation of individuals by one general presumption instead of by the whole of their character i grant that an earnest person being no more infallible than other men is liable to dislike people on account of opinions which do not merit dislike but if he neither himself does them any ill offence nor connives at it being done by others he is not intolerant and the forbearance which flows from a conscientious sense of the importance to mankind of the equal freedom of all opinions is the only tolerance which is commendable or to the highest moral order of minds possible 
End of chapter 2 Moral Influences in Early Youth Part 1 Recording by Gary Gilbert Wheaton, Illinois Chapter 2 Part 2 Autobiography This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Gilbert. Autobiography by John Stuart Mill. Chapter 2 Part 2 Moral Influences in Early Youth My Father's Character and Opinions. It will be admitted that a man of the opinions and the character above described was likely to leave a strong moral impression on any mind principally formed by him, and that his moral teaching was not likely to err on the side of laxity or indulgence. The element which was chiefly deficient in his moral relation to his children was that of tenderness. I do not believe that this deficiency lay in his own nature. I believe him to have had much more feeling than he habitually showed, and much greater capacities of feeling than were ever developed. He resembled most Englishmen in being ashamed of the signs of feeling, and, by the absence of demonstration, starving the feelings themselves. If we consider further that he was in the trying position of sole teacher, and add to this that his temper was constitutionally irritable, it is impossible not to feel true pity for a father who did, and strove to do, so much for his children, who would have so valued their affection, yet who must have been consistently feeling that fear of him was drying it up at its source. This was no longer the case later in life, and with his younger children. They loved him tenderly, and if I cannot say so much of myself, I was always loyally devoted to him. As regards my own education, I hesitate to pronounce whether I was more a loser or gainer by his severity. It was not such as to prevent me from having a happy childhood, and I do not believe that boys can be induced to apply themselves with vigor and, what is so much more difficult, perseverance, to dry and irksome studies by the sole force of persuasion and soft words. Much must be done, and much must be learnt by children, for which rapid discipline and known liability to punishment are indispensable as means. It is, no doubt, a very laudable effect in modern teaching to render as much as possible of what the youth are required to learn, easy and interesting to them. But when this principle is pushed to the length of not requiring them to learn anything but what has been made easy and interesting, one of the chief objects of education is sacrificed. I rejoice in the decline of the old brutal and tyrannical system of teaching, which, however, did succeed in enforcing habits of application. But the new, as it seems to me, is training up a race of men who will be incapable of doing anything which is disagreeable to them. I do not, then, believe that fear, as an element of education, can be dispensed with, 
but I am sure that it ought not to be the main element. But when it predominates so much as to preclude love and confidence on the part of the child to those who should be the unreservedly trusted advisers of after years, and perhaps to seal up the fountains of frank and spontaneous communicativeness in the child's nature, it is an evil for which a large abatement must be made from the benefits, moral and intellectual, which may follow, during the first period of my life, the habitual frequenters of my father's house were limited to a very few persons, most of them little known to the world, but whom personal worth and more or less of congeniality with at least his political opinions, not so frequently to be met with them as since, inclined him to cultivate, and his conversations with them I listened to with interest and instruction. My being an habitual inmate of my father's study made me acquainted with the dearest of his friends, David Ricardo, who by his benevolent countenance and kindliness of manner was very attractive to young persons, and who, after I became a student of political economy, invited me to his house and to talk with him in order to converse on the subject. I was a more frequent visitor from about 1817 or 1818, to Mr. Hume, who, born in the same part of Scotland as my father, and having been, I rather think, a younger schoolfellow or college companion of his, had, on returning from India, renewed their youthful acquaintance, and who, coming, like many others, greatly under the influence of my father's intellect and energy of character, was induced partly by that influence to go into Parliament, and there adopt the line of conduct which has given him an honourable place in the history of this country. Of Mr. Bentham I saw much more, owing to the close intimacy which existed between him and my father. I do not know how soon after my father's first arrival in England they became acquainted, but my father was the earliest Englishman of any great mark who thoroughly understood, and in the main adopted, Bentham's general views of ethics, government, and law, and this was a natural foundation for sympathy between them, and made them familiar companions in a period of Bentham's life during which he admitted much fewer visitors than was the case subsequently. At this time Mr. Bentham passed some part of every year at Barrow Greenhouse, in a beautiful part of the Surrey Hills, a few miles from Godstone, and there I each summer accompanied my father with a long visit. In 1813 Mr. Bentham, my father and I, made an excursion which included Oxford, Bath, and Bristol, Exeter, Plymouth, and Portsmouth. In this journey I saw many things which were instructive to me, and acquired my first taste for natural scenery, in the elementary form of fondness for a view. In the succeeding winter we moved into the house very near Mr. Bentham's, which my father rented from him. In Queen Square, Westminster, from 1814 to 1817, Mr. Bentham lived during half of each year at Ford Abbey, in Somersetshire, or rather in a part of Devonshire surrounded by Somersetshire, which intervals I had the advantage of passing at that place. His sojourn was, I think, an important circumstance in my education. Nothing contributes more 
to nourish evaluation of sentiments in a people than the large and free character of their habituations the middle age architecture the baronial hall and the spacious and lofty rooms of this fine old place so unlike the mean and cramped intervals of english middle-class life gave the sentiment of a larger and freer existence and were to me a sort of poetic cultivation aided also by the character of the grounds in which the abbey stood which were rayent and secluded umbraguous and full of the sound of falling waters i owed another of the fortunate circumstances in my education a year's residence in france to mr bentham's brother general sir samuel bentham i had seen sir samuel bentham and his family at their house near gosport in the course of the tour already mentioned he being then superintendent of the dockyard at portsmouth and during a stay of a few days which they made at ford abbey shortly after the peace before going to live on the continent in eighteen twenty they invited me for a six months visit to them in the south of france which their kindness ultimately prolonged to nearly a twelvemonth sir samuel bentham though of a character of mind different from that of his illustrious brother was a man of very considerable attainments and general powers with a decided genius for mechanical art his wife a daughter of the celebrated chemist mr fordyce was a woman of strong will and decided character much general knowledge and great practical good sense of the edgeworth kind she was the ruling spirit of the household as she deserved and was well qualified to be their family consisted of one son the eminent botanist and three daughters the younger about two years my senior i am indebted to them for much and various instruction and for an almost parental interest in my welfare when i first joined them in may nineteen twenty they occupied the chateau of pompagne still belonging to a descendant of voltaire's enemy on the heights overlooking the plain of the garonne between montbon and toulouse i accompanied them in an excursion to the pyrenees including a stay of some duration at Bener de Vigor, a journey to Pau, Bayonne, and Bagrés de Lechon, and an ascent of the Pic du Midi de Bijor. The first introduction to the highest order of mountain scenery made the deepest impression on me, and gave a color to my taste through life. In October we proceeded by the beautiful mountain route of Castres and Saint-Pons, from Toulouse to Montpierre, in which last neighborhood Sir Samuel had just bought the estate of Reticillière, near the foot of the singular mountain of Saint-Lô. During this residence in France I acquired a familiar knowledge of the French language and acquaintance with the ordinary French literature. I took lessons in various bodily exercises, in none of which, however, I made any proficiency and at Montpierre I attended the excellent winter courses of lectures at the Faculté des Sciences, those of M. Aglada on chemistry, of M. Provencher on zoology, and of a very accomplished representative of the 18th century metaphysics, Mr. Guéron, on logic, under the name of Philosophy of the Sciences. I also went through a course of the higher mathematics, 
under the private tuition of Monsieur Leterich, a professor at the Lycine of Montpierre. But the greatest, perhaps, of the many advantages which I owed to this episode in my education was that of having breathed for a whole year the free and genial atmosphere of continental life. This advantage was not the less real, though I could not then estimate, nor even consciously feel it, having so little experience of English life, and the few people I knew being mostly such as had public objects of a large and personally disinterested kind at heart, I was ignorant of the low moral tone of what in England is called society, the habit of, not indeed professing, but taking for granted in every mode of implication, that conduct is of course always directed toward low and petty objects, the absence of high feelings which manifest themselves by sneering depreciation of all demonstrations of them, and by general abstinence, except among a few of the stricter religionists, from professing any high principles of action at all, except in those preordained cases in which such profession is put on as part of the costume and formalities of the occasion. I could not then know or estimate the difference between this manner of existence and that of a people like the French, whose faults, if equally real, are at events different, among whom sentiments, which by comparison at least may be called elevated, are the current coin of human intercourse, both in books and in private life, and though often evaporating in profession, are yet kept alive in the nation at large by constant exercise and simulated by sympathy, so as to form a living and active part of the existence of great numbers of persons, and to be recognized and understood by all. Neither could I then appreciate the general culture of the understanding, which results from the habitual exercise of the feelings, and is thus carried down into the most uneducated classes of several countries on the continent in a degree not equaled in England among the so-called educated, except where an unusual tenderness of conscience leads to a habitual exercise of the intellect on questions of right and wrong. I did not know the way in which, among the ordinary English, the absence of interest in things of an unselfish kind, except occasionally, in a special thing, here and there, the habit of not speaking to others, nor much even to themselves about the things in which they do feel interest causes both to their feelings and their intellectual facilities to remain undeveloped or to develop themselves only in some singular and very limited direction reducing them considered as spiritual beings to a kind of negative existence all these things i did not perceive till long afterward but I even then felt, though without stating it clearly to myself, the contrast between the frank sociability and amicability of French personal intercourse and the English mode of existence, in which everybody acts as if everybody else, with few or no exceptions, was either an enemy or a bore. In France, it is true, the bad as well as the good points, both of individual and of national character, come more to the surface and break out more fearlessly in ordinary intercourse than in england but the general habit of the people is to show 
as well as to expect friendly feelings in every one towards every other wherever there is not some positive cause for the opposite in england it is only of the best-bred people in the upper or upper middle ranks that anything like this can be said in my way through paris both going and returning i passed some time in the house of m say the eminent political economist who was a friend and correspondent of my father having become acquainted with him on a visit to england a year or two after the peace he was a man of the later period of the french revolution a fine specimen of the best kind of french republican one of those who had never bent the knee to bonaparte though courted by him to do so a truly upright brave and enlightened man he lived a quiet and studious life made happy by warm affections public and private he was acquainted with many of the chiefs of the liberal party and i saw various noteworthy persons while staying at his house among whom i have pleasure in the recollection of having once seen saint simon not yet the founder either of a philosophy or a religion and considered only as a clever original the chief fruit which i carried away from the society i saw was a strong and permanent interest in continental liberalism of which i ever afterward kept myself au courant as much as of english politics a thing not at all unusual in those days with englishmen and which had a very salutary influence on my development keeping me free from the error always prevalent in england and from which even my father with all his superiority to prejudice was not exempt of judging universal questions by a merely english standard after passing a few weeks at cannes with an old friend of my father's i returned to england in july eighteen twenty one and my education resumed its ordinary course End of chapter 2 Moral Influences in Early Youth, Part 2. Recorded by Gary Gilbert, Wheaton, Illinois.